Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the 1981 neo-noir heist thriller Thief, starring James Caan as a safecracker who takes on one last job to make his fortune. Written and directed by Michael Mann, this was Mann's feature film debut setting the scene for a celebrated career. And uh, we are watching this in honour of James Caan, who passed away recently, and a Hollywood icon with an illustrious career. And uh, this is one of the greats. Morgan had seen it before. I watched it for the first time and was wildly impressed. What a great movie. And absolutely fascinating if you're interested in tools and machinery, because this is a very machinery forward depiction of crime. Yes, as you said in your intro, this is a film about a safecracker, and it seems like a fact on the record that by the end of making this movie, James Caan was capable of cracking safes. Yes. Because <laughs> he had learned from real people who could do that, and um, they show you how in this film. It's a pretty good instruction manual. Obviously, you need a lot of tools that we don't have, but... Um, Michael Mann was like, I would like to make a documentary about stealing things. And <laughs> this movie was happened. Yeah, I have not seen very many Michael Mann films at all. Possibly only this and The Last of the Mohicans. I feel like there must be one other that I'm forgetting. But he's obviously one of the most celebrated American filmmakers alive, I would say. And I watched this few months ago and I just thought that James Caan was so unbelievably magnetic in it and he's one of those actors who is just sort of omnipresent in like the second half of 20th century American cinema he's obviously in The Godfather which was what I primarily knew him from but there's a lot of sort of big roles of his that I haven't seen but I just love him and in this in particular and so I was really sad when he died recently and so it seemed like an obvious choice to do this movie because I thought it would be a good topic for an episode anyway, and now it has this sort of extra valence. But would you like to start us off with a little bit of discussion about Michael Mann and his background? Because obviously this movie is just like a template for so much of what he would go on to do later. Yeah, so he started out making documentaries and commercials before writing and directing on TV shows like Starsky and Hutch and Police Story. So like he very early on in his career kind of figured out what he wanted to do, which is primarily crime media. He wrote four episodes of Starsky and Hutch, which was very intriguing to me because I love Starsky and Hutch and have undoubtedly seen at least some of them. Um, and then he went on to co-create Miami Vice. But an intriguing part of his origin story is um, quoted in the Criterion article about Thief, where it says, While making the TV movie The Jericho Mile on location and false imprisonment in 1979, he also became intimately acquainted with the way felons interacted with each other in a penal institution. The clear demarcation of racial divides and gang hierarchies, the behaviour necessary for survival in a severe dog-eat-dog -dog environment. And um, that kind of is passed on to many of his films. And as I said in the intro, this is his first movie and it is extremely impressive, like how self-assured this film is. It's obviously very stylish, kind of he was known for making these films with beautifully lit nighttime scenes and lots of sort of tense car chases and so forth. Towards the end of the episode, we will be discussing how much this movie was, uh, I would say, lovingly ripped off by Drive. <laughs> But yeah, he's kind of known for making these tense, stylish thrillers. And as well as that, he made like Last of Mohicans and Ali. And another cool part of the background 
for this movie specifically is that um it's set in this tough neighborhood in Chicago, which is kind of his background and also overlaps a lot with James Caan's background because he also was a working class actor, something that is less common today than before. Um, but also, Morgan, you found this great recent New York Times profile, which has some excellent quotes in it about Michael Mann's general personality. Yes. So one of the secondary sources for this profile, so a friend of the subject whom they've gotten to give quotes, which, you know, for like a writer in the New Yorker will be like, they're teachers and like people you, they're friends from high school who you've never heard of. And in this article, it's like Daniel Day-Lewis and Christopher Nolan. <laughs> because Daniel Day-Lewis starred in The Last of the Mohicans and apparently he and Michael Mann are like very good friends, which is just not something I ever really think about because Daniel Day-Lewis to me seems like an ethereal being who just like doesn't exist as a human, although I know he does and he lives in downtown New York. But he gave this really great quote on man's upbringing and his sort of family life. And he says, whereas his filmography is littered with broken, solitary state race men, he says his parents loved each other deeply and man and his own wife, an artist named Summer, have been married since 1974, raising four daughters. And then Day-Lewis says... In a city that's not renowned for child-rearing, he's managed to raise this wonderful, solid family that's so close. You go to their house, and it's an oasis. Which I think is just, like, so evocative as an image. And also, again, the idea of these people hanging out together at this guy's house is just, like, I can't really wrap my mind It's wonderful, and it's really kind of the antithesis of his very masculine image as a filmmaker, which as the article yes. points out, is just all about like lonely, measurable men being destroyed by their lives of crime. Yeah. But then sort of to contradict this a little bit, he says that he and man are known to race a few bikes unofficially in the canyons on the Pacific Coast Highway and pulled a few hair-raising stunts. We have that in common. We enjoy going That's fast. a hobby. That's a fun hobby. I will also add that uh, <laughs> Michael Mann is 79 years of age. <laughs> I mean, I assume this was when they were younger men, but I just, I can't decide whether the image of this actually happening or the image of Daniel Day-Lewis saying this to a reporter is more enjoyable to me, but it's competitive. Like, they're both pretty good. I mean, I'd be hypnotized by anything Daniel Day-Lewis ever told me, so, you know. <laughs> oh, 100%. I mean, when I was a teenager, my best friend from high school and my mom and I went to this event and there was like a historical figure there who my mother was thrilled to meet. And my friend turned to me and said, like, this would be like if you met Daniel Day-Lewis. And I was like, that's <laughs> correct. And I still think he's basically the only famous person who I would just become completely just like agog and not be able to speak in front of. Like, he again, he just seems like this ethereal being. But obviously, he's just a person, like everybody else. And he and Michael Mann like to hang. And I think that's beautiful. <laughs> um, but one thing I think is quite interesting about Mann's sort of career and reputation, although, again, as I said, I haven't actually seen that many of his movies, although I was completely entranced by Thief, so I will be I mean, I've seen enough of them, them that... Going into Thief, which I watched with my family, in fact, I was like, the Michael Mann drinking game is you take a drink every time there's a big blue square on the screen. Yes. And like, I obviously, just because I know about movies and like, I'm on Twitter following film critics, I'm familiar with like his aesthetic and could see it clearly in this film. But quite famously, if you know about American film, like he's worked within the studio system, but his movies pretty much always lose money. So... Because of the type of films he's making, which are these sort of like crime thrillers, it's not as though it's just stuff that takes place in one room and like you don't really need any money. Like they need some money to be made, but 
despite being sort of superficially something that seemed like they would be commercial, they're so sort of artistic and odd that they never seem to quite hit with the box office. So, like, famously, The Insider, which was 99, I think, a Russell Crowe movie that he made, like, tanked. I mean, I was genuinely surprised to see that this film was a failure because 1981 was really the period for, for like, this type of film, you know? Yeah, and... Watching this now, it doesn't seem inaccessible at all. Like, it is a bit more experimental than mainstream action movies. There are long sequences where no one's really talking. But it's, it's I mean, a this crime was thriller. The, this was also like the taxi driver era, you know. Well, it's a bit, it's a bit after that. Yeah. We're into the 80s now, although it's still kind of a 70s movie. Yeah. But despite being this sort of legendary figure who has influenced other filmmakers in a really intense way, probably most famously Christopher Nolan, who is just like an acolyte of man's. I think he kind of is a person who is more known to film people than to like general audiences. So I mentioned to my mom that we were doing this episode and she didn't know who Michael Mann was. And I thought that was really telling because my mom is not a film person in the way that we are, but like she goes to the movies and, like, reads tabloids and, like, knows about stuff. And it's the sort of thing where, to people like us, Michael Mann is, like, one of the major American artists. And he's been so influential in so many ways. And yet, if you go outside of that kind of bubble, I think you would find a lot of people who don't know who he is. Especially now, because he hasn't been making movies as much recently, obviously. But it's kind of odd position to be in. I think, to have both that influence and to be kind of under the radar in a way. Yeah. So I feel like we've talked so much about Michael Mann already. We've not even started talking about the movie, but we do also need to introduce the lead actor of this film as well, the late, great James Kahn, who has had a long and storied career. He comes from a working class Jewish background. He went to college and then basically dropped out because he realized that he had fallen in love with acting and then kind of switched over to do five years of theatre training and off-Broadway shows before breaking out in the 1960s. So he was born in 1940 and was like already acting professionally in his mid-20s. And then his like biggest role of this early part of his career is obviously The Godfather, which is 1972. And he sort of peaked in the 70s and 80s, but like he just kept going on until he died this year. But yeah, like one of the things he's kind of known for is like he turned down dozens and dozens of really major roles during the peak of his career, including Blade Runner and Superman in the lead role as Superman, which would have been wild, um, and Apocalypse Now. I kind of don't believe that they would have cast him as Superman. Like, I just don't think that would have happened. But it's incredible that it was offered to him. And then this movie is obviously kind of one of his greats. And he lists it as kind of one of his two favourite films he's ever he, he ever made. And to make it he really became like immersed in all the training of being a real thief. Yeah, so I was reading some interviews with him sort of after the fact, and then also some of the obituaries of him. And I think I already knew this was his favorite movie, but it I found it quite moving actually to read him speaking about it because, well, obviously now when actors talk to the press... And in the past, too, like, they have to just be positive about everything because that's their job. But once you get to the point that he was at where, like, he's this legendary veteran actor, he can pretty much say whatever he wants. And so when someone like that says, I'm really, really proud of this movie, and I think it's one of the best I've ever done, 
that feels very real to me. And so he says, I think this was in a Rolling Stone article. It's one of my favorites, if not my favorite, for selfish reasons. I mean, even divorcing myself from what's good about it or what's bad about it, I enjoyed it very much after it was put together. It was really, really hard making it. Personally, I was very proud of it, which is a lot to say. Usually I'm a little picky, but I was very proud of the movie. And definitely if you look at interviews with him from back in the day, he is quite critical of stuff, which probably is why he was turning down those roles, because he was like, nah, not good enough, or just like, I don't want to deal with this. So it clearly was very special to him. And the quote from Rolling Stone in 1981 about making it is, I got so into the character, I could see people backing away from me. I was like a maniac, and I had to work very hard to make Frank, the character, human, because the guy is really a prick, a killer. Which obviously, like, you know, the extreme method stuff is a bit tiring sometimes, but um, he seems to have been very, very intensely committed to this in a way he ne- maybe wasn't in some of his other parts. And as you noted, he took a five-year break not long after this movie, and I assume this contributed to him just being like, I'm out. <laughs> like, I just need to be normal Yeah, it's like I poured while. my heart into this role, which required massive research, and then the film was not well-received. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we haven't really mentioned yet, but this film has... Not not like a co-lead, but kind of the second most important character is Frank's love interest, played by the actress Tuesday Weld, who I feel like is kind of not forgotten, but like kind of not super well known now, but she had quite an influential career in the 60s and 70s. She started out as a child actress and model and then was sort of a starlet in the 50s. And she was a sex symbol teen star and... Uh, I found this great article in The Rake, which was kind of talking about her star status and compared her to Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton. And it said, there were rumours of dalliances with men three times her age and she drip fed the press with hints of addiction, sexual activity and family discord. This was, after all, a 16-year-old who marched into the lobby of the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and demanded to be allowed into Elvis Presley's room. She succeeded. Which just paints such a dark picture, you know. She retired from acting in like the 80s or 90s. It seems like she turned down a lot of big roles just like James Caan and often kind of opted for smaller movies and like weirder movies and also more extreme movies. Not in this, necessarily in the sense that like they were more artistically experimental, but just like she wasn't as interested in mainstream stuff and she was okay with doing stuff that was like quite sexually out there, which definitely created a certain image. Two of the movies she turned down were Rosemary's Baby and Lolita. And uh, there's a quote from her saying that she was Lolita in real life, so she didn't feel the need to do it on screen, which also very dark. This was obviously made long after that period in her career. She was, you know, in her late 30s at this point, although she looks very youthful. I would say her role is like the girl. She's fantastic. But um, essentially her role is that like Frank, he is a successful safecracker, but like he wants to settle down and have a life. And when we're introduced to Tuesday Weld's character, Jesse, they've clearly been dating on and off, but like it's not super serious. And once he lands this job that he knows is going to get him a lot of money, he, he like asks her on a date, doesn't show up. And then when she's pissed off because he stands her up, he essentially like press gangs her, kidnaps her off to just try and persuade her to move to the suburbs with him because his dream is to just have like this white picket fence 
happy family life that he never has as a child. So like, that's kind of an interesting role for her that like she really has to sell because it's such a wild concept that anyone would be like, yeah, sure, I'll move to the suburbs with you, you weird criminal who's clearly really emotionally volatile. I mean, I think the one problem with the movie is that this makes no sense, right? Like, you're just like, what the fuck? Like, I think you were like, James Caan is almost hot enough that this seems plausible. Yeah, pretty much. But I was thinking about it watching it the second time, and I still think it's absurd. I mean, he's sort of violent when he takes her off to this diner date, but not so much so that you get the sense that she's, like, scared, and that's why she's agreeing, No, she's pissed off with him, and she feels completely open and free to being pissed off with him, you know? Yes. And she clearly is infatuated with him, and he is so hot that, like, you know, plausible. But the speed with which this happens is pretty absurd. I think the way to think about it that makes a bit more sense is that, like, they're both in such a state of, like, lunacy that the speed actually is more logical than if it were taking place over a slightly longer period of time. Because it's so fast that you're like, this is nuts. But they're both clearly just like, it's fine. We're going to get married and have a house. I still don't think the movie totally works on this level, but I do think that even in the, you know, 40 years since this happened, that it is more socially acceptable for women to be single. Yeah, I mean, I was also thinking that, because, like, if they're both meant to be about 35, and also she is kind of talking about, like, oh, my life is so stable now, I don't want to disrupt it, and then talking about how when she was younger, she had this really chaotic life, I'm like, well, do you think your life's really stable? Like, is he representing something that's really exciting for you or is he representing a different kind of stability? But like, either way, it's like, if she's 35, maybe she is like, I guess this is my chance to get married and have a kid. (laughs) Yeah, and of course there were always women who were sort of living in different ways, but that's not the sense you get from this woman at all. And I think the prospect of just sort of like cutting the line and just getting to the end point really fast. And she says that she's infertile, she can't have children, and he's like, I don't care. That, like, that would be very seductive to this woman, right? Because she that would be seen as, like, this horrible thing, and she's kind of getting around the problem, right? They just don't give her enough to do after this big scene that they have. Again, that it totally makes sense, but I think that she is good enough in the movie that you kind of buy it, which is a huge testament to her performance, because otherwise you would just be like, what? I mean, her whole career is acting opposite these titans, either like massive celebrities like Elvis Presley who couldn't act, or people like Jack Nicholson who definitely could, you know? Yeah. But I think, I mean, that scene in in the diner, which is basically, like, she, she has real compelling dialogue in that scene, but it's primarily this just, like, incredible It's like a one-act one act play kind of thing. Yeah. It only comes, like, 15 or 20 minutes into the movie, and then it's a 15-minute scene. Like, it is long. And it's the most you hear him talk the whole movie, for sure. And the movie kind of pings back and forth between these two versions of this character, which is one version is this really macho guy who's doing his job and isn't talking very much, but is, like, these are my terms and my rules and you have to agree to them. And then there's this really like wounded boy version of the character, which is clearly like the version he's keeping inside at all times. And you see that version most strongly in this diner scene. And I think Khan said that like, this was the piece of acting he was most proud of in his career, which makes sense because he has to sell it to the audience that this woman would 
uh, sort of agree to this. So he has to be unbelievably charismatic, but you also just get such a sense of the specific contours of this guy's fucked up life, right? And in a way that doesn't make him seem like a good guy, but he makes him feel so human that I think you're really on his side after this scene. Yeah. I mean, his backstory is that he was in the system as a kid and then was incarcerated really soon after that. And then his sentence was extended because he killed someone who was trying to rape him in prison. So he was in jail for like 20, like 15, 20 years. And then when he comes out, he immediately becomes a safe cracker and becomes incredibly good at his job. And sort of one of the main themes of this film is it's very explicit in depicting this sort of criminal community and his job specifically as a blue collar job. So instead of it being a traditional heist film where it's all about like glamour and antics and trickery, it uses all of the same technology that people were using in real life during this sort of mid 20th century period to crack safes. So like the first scene involves him using this gigantic drill that weighed like 200 pounds. And there's this great interview with James Caan where he talks about using this actual thing (laughs) and he was like well first of all you've got to drill through this like solid steel thing but then you've got to feel precisely when the steel ends because then there's copper after this and you see copper is really soft so you've got to stop because when if you drill through the copper it curls around the drill and stops it from moving any further and all this stuff and he was like oh it was such a thrill to like know that I got it right and then swing it open on camera and then there's this other door behind it and I was like what the fuck am I meant to do with this I just hit it with the hammer and opened it that way and it was like God, this is a good movie. And I was watching it, like, as I said, with my family, um, which includes my brother who has like a metalworking adjacent job and my mum who used to work on oil tankers. So they were like thrilled when there was this extensive scene using a thermite lance. And I was like, well, I don't know what this is, but I'm glad you're happy that there's a thermite lance in this film. (laughs) It's like this very long thing that like shoots something that's so hot that it makes an explosion of magnesium or something. And it like melts steel basically it's like a lightsaber Uh, (laughs) but um one of the great things about this film kind of behind the scenes is there was this technical advisor john santucci who was a real thief who michael mann already knew um, and i think cast him in a minor role in miami vice and then returned to crime in the 90s there's like an article in the chicago tribune about him being arrested for uh theft again but this film is just like aggressively authentic in its depiction of how people were doing this. Like Frank is specifically based around this crew of Chicago thieves that were operating from the 40s to the 70s. And on the DVD commentary track to this movie, Khan is kind of reminiscing about how all the cops working security on the film and the technical advisors who were all former criminals were hanging around before shooting and uh, they'd grown up together or had married into each other's families and Khan said, it's just like in my neighbourhood, people don't realise it's not uncommon for one brother to be a thief and another brother to be a policeman. And since the statute of limitations had been up on the crimes, the advisor had committed, they were bragging to the cops that they'd done it, which is a delightful background detail about... um. <laughs> the extreme authenticity of all the crime stuff but yeah it really emphasizes the idea of him being this sort of working stiff because the main conflict of the film is based around him taking this sort of classic one last job job where he's recruited by this mob boss who like gives him 
a really impressive heist to do. And then there is this essentially like workplace conflict between Frank the thief and his new boss. Yeah. And I think before we get into all the details of that, because that heist is basically like the set piece that's like the end of, say, the fourth act of the movie, if this movie has five acts. And um, just the whole network of men around this central guy who are sort of like keeping his act afloat, either practically or emotionally, I think is depicted really well in the movie. So his cover job, if we haven't said already, is that he runs a used car dealership, which is like very funny and perfect. And as you say, is like not glamorous, right? Like, obviously, you can make a lot of money doing that. But that's not. Yeah, I mean, he's like, you know, yelling his employees to like clean stuff up, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And then he also owns this bar. And the guy who is like working the bar knows to give him the phone if he comes in because that's how he's communicating with like his criminal that pals. That made me think of Starsky and Hutch so much because like I remember watching Starsky and Hutch and just like there's so many scenes where it's like obviously pre-mobile phones by several decades and like everyone is just constantly communicating by phones and bars. <laughs> yeah. And then he has this mentor from prison who he says taught him everything he know knows who is still in prison. Played by Willie Nelson. In an astonishing performance, I think. He basically has one scene. Khan goes to visit him in prison, and they're sort of separated by, you know, the glass wall. They're, so their faces are really close to each other because they have to speak through the, like, perforations. And Willie Nelson is just looking at him with, like, such unbelievable intensity that you get so much of their relationship and who this character is through the way they're communicating. And clearly this is his father figure whom he's invested so much in. And it turns out that he's really ill and desperately needs to get out of prison. And so then Khan slash Frank sets in motion all these other like people who he uses to bribe this judge to get him out. And the sense of him at once being this like little boy and this unbelievably accomplished professional It's, again, like, on this balance theme almost in the movie. And the vulnerability with which he deals with the Willie Nelson stuff and also the, like, desperation for satisfaction in that part of his life. I mean, (laughs) he, like, desperately wants a kid. And he and Tuesday Weld... Like, go to the adoption office that's, oh like, God, the official... It's so, it's so awkward. And so, obviously, once they find out that he was incarcerated for, like, however many years, like, he's not eligible, and then he gets really upset, and that's when you find out that he grew up in the foster care system. But, like, it's so delusional that they would even have showed up in the first place, where, like, obviously they're not going to be able to do that. But that's where his sort of logical brain is not functioning. But it's also like he has literally never worked within the legitimate bounds of society because like he was fucked up by an unfair arrest as a teenager and then just spent like his entire adult life in jail and then became a criminal. So it's like, of course he doesn't know how the adoption process works. Yes, but like, I mean, you could probably figure that out. And also she obviously doesn't, can't do anything about it. And she clearly knows it's not going to work and is clearly very uncomfortable and embarrassed. So then basically this mob boss whom you have just mentioned, who is the other kind of big force in this movie, 
offers him this like one big job, but clearly he thinks that it's going to be an ongoing relationship. And he begins to sort of insinuate himself into Frank's life up to and including procuring a child for him through underground. Yeah, he means. like buys a baby for them, which was yeah. like the most stressful point of the movie for me. And also the funniest was like when they get the baby immediately I'm like fucking stressing out because Tuesday Weld has been handed this baby and she's like walking down a set of stairs in stiletto heels so I'm like this is not safe (laughs) which is not like I'm like not a real criticism but then they go to the diner and I was like very confused because it seemed like the baby was meant to be like a fresh baby but then they go to the diner and they've cast like a one-year-old. <laughs> so they're holding like a one-year-old baby. And I'm like, you're talking about naming your new baby and it's a one-year-old, which I realize is just a thing that happens in movies. But I was like, this is a fully grown child. <laughs> well, we also don't know. Like, I, I think that's actually fine. Yeah, because it's don't like, explain... it can have come from anywhere. It can easily right. be actually a one-year-old baby. <laughs> we don't know what's going on with that baby. I mean, what was funny to me about that is the baby's not crying at any point, no. which is obviously hilarious. It's like because the, that the baby, baby is just be... like silent. <laughs> The baby would be screaming bloody murder the entire time. But yeah, it's this just like total childish fantasy that he has and that she's going along with that they can have this normal life. But obviously his life is not normal in any way. Yeah. So they wind up doing this other job, which is the most elaborate sort of crime set piece in the movie. So I'm sure that you're mother and your brother were very happy about that set piece. Um, Do you want to talk a bit about how that kind of comes off in the film? It involves kind of making a hole in the roof of this very cool posh building and then climbing down an elevator shaft and then they basically have to like drill through this gigantic wall and they've also done a bit of sort of like social engineering to get the correct passwords. Uh, So it's like quite elaborate but once again it's kind of this cross between a more traditional heist movie setup and something that is like much more documentary style because you really see how much physical labor goes into it. It's less like a thriller and more like just seeing how heavy everything is and like they have to have special equipment and they have to put on these fireproof helmets and, you know, body suits and stuff to avoid getting, you know, melted by the lance. And then, you know, they, they get the cash. And that's the point where the film gets really stressful because you're like, well, if this heist's got off without a hitch, then something really bad's going to have to happen in the final act. <laughs> yes. And we sort of said it begins with a heist. We didn't go too much into detail with that, which it's a heist. It's interesting to watch. But starting that way, which is also how Drive starts, I think it's just like a perfect way to get into a movie like this, right? Because you haven't been given any information about the characters and you're just kind of thrown in. And one thing you see in that first heist is, like, they're pulling out or he's pulling out these, like, drawers full of, like, fancy jewelry and just, like, throwing them on the ground. And so you're like, why are you doing that? Because that seems like it would be good to steal. And when he's and he pulls out these just, like, envelopes and takes those instead, which turn out to be full of just, like, diamonds, diamonds that haven't been set in anything. And... It's like 10 minutes at the beginning of the movie where there's almost no dialogue. You don't really get any context, but it both sets you up for the characters and the kind of movie you're going to watch. And then this one later is a sort of bigger version of that because it's a bigger job and you're getting more technical stuff. And you've kind of been trained a bit by that one at the beginning to know how to watch this. And it's so accurate. It feels like, I mean, they are literally melting through a safe 
door, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, after I watched it, I was trying to find out who filmed that, right? Because it's like, presumably, rather than it being traditional stunt people, I mean, unless it literally would be James Caan, which just seems unnecessary and unlikely, I presume that they just got some professional metal workers or literally the thieves who were the technical consultants to film this because like they're all wearing masks and stuff so it could be anyone but like I couldn't find any information on who's actually behind the masks there but I would assume someone who's professionally licensed to hold a gigantic thing that can melt through solid steel (laughs) yes there's also a quality to these safe crackings that's like very sexual right which I think is part of the reason why the like Stuff with a woman doesn't really come off as well because they haven't paid as much attention to that. But there's this like unbelievable sort of care and detail lavished upon this like penetration of these safes, right? (laughs) It's very Freudian. And after this one is over, you see Khan, he's covered with like soot and he's sweaty and he just sits down in this chair once they've gotten into the safe, because they don't, they don't have to like do it fast to get out. They just, because they've dismantled the alarm and it's the weekend or something. So they can sort of take their time actually getting the stuff out. He like sits down in a chair and starts smoking a cigarette and it's completely post-coital. I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> like the safe cracking as a sex metaphor. But you do get the sense of like, this is where he feels the most pleasure. Well, it's also the classic thing of like, this is what he knows how to do really well. Yes. And, like, there's the sort of uncertainty and anxiety in his personal life because he doesn't quite know how to be a man, right? It's completely not present in this area of his life because he's so unbelievably competent. And sometimes that competence expresses itself in violence towards other people. Like, he threatens somebody who's, like, stiffed him of money in one of the early scenes of the movie, and it's really brutal. But I think we as an audience are sort of trained to respond positively to people who just know absolutely what they're doing, even when that is unpleasant or violent. Which is why Michael Mann was so completely right to just be obsessive about the level of technical detail in this film, and also obsessive in terms of getting James Caan to be trained. Because it's, it's kind of like, you know, being able to hold a conversation and dance at the same time. It's like he has to be able to do this stuff in a way that looks really natural. I mean, there's a scene partway through the movie where he and this guy who's like designing the drill for the final set piece have this extremely technical conversation about like what types of metal to use, which is not going to be understood by anyone in the audience who is not like a welder. <laughs> but he was like we need to have this be completely accurate it's going to be true to life the different kinds of metal they're talking about like how to do the drill bit correctly or whatever and it's like well you know what it does sound very real yes should we talk a little bit about some of the other technical aspects of the film before we talk about the ending because this is a real feast for the eyes and ears yes. this movie so and we haven't actually talked about we haven't so actually mentioned yet but the music for this movie is by tangerine dream And it's one of the many elements which is like very clearly being aped by Drive. It's this sort of throbbing techno score, which in 1981, I would say is a very progressive choice for a film of this type. Apparently, originally, Michael Mann was considering having more of a sort of bluesy score. Um, This is a neo-noir, so like you kind of expect it to have that. But like, You can really see how this film influenced other neo-noir films later because now this style of music is precisely what you expect to see in films that are like trying to go for either literally the 80s or a 1980s 
aesthetic and it works really well and it also kind of fits with the metallic themes of the movie because like visually it's like very metallic as a lot of Michael Mann films are like loads of blues loads of silvers loads of sort of reflective surfaces but also the whole thing is literally by people like drilling into stuff so that sort of techno music it sounds artificial in a way that really fits whereas if you have this sort of jazzy bluesy score it's far too nostalgic and emotional for like what he's going for I think yeah um I just think the music is so like does manage to convey a ton of emotion while also being as you say kind of remote in a way and it just sounds so good (laughs) which a lot of these like ones that ape it don't sound that good yeah it's also because like most of the stuff that like currently is trying to look or sound like the 80s is like not correct and also like not necessary because like another thing that's interesting about this particular score right is that like in a lot of current movies that are trying to do this it's either directly literal or sort of implied that this is the music that the actor like the character is listening to or it's something to do with their taste or it just like fits their vibe whereas in this the music has absolutely nothing to do with the main character there's absolutely no fucking way that frank is out there listening to tangerine dream i mean he's probably not listening to anything but if he is it's not this (laughs) but like this is completely you know it's outside the world of the film it's like it's an artistic experience rather than being part of the world building so to speak yes absolutely so that combined with the cinematography which is just sensational just like tremendous stuff shot by donald e thorin this was his first feature film yes well he had been i'm on his wikipedia right now and he was a camera operator for like a decade before this and had worked with a lot of very impressive directors. His resume of directors he worked with as a camera operator, I would say, is more impressive than the directors he worked with as a cinematographer. Um, so directors he worked with before this as a camera operator include John Cassavetes, Martin Scorsese, Sidney Poitier, Hal Ashby, Woody Allen, Alan Pacula, and Yvonne Passer, who is a Czech director. Uh, so that's pretty good. So it, that makes more sense because I also was like, how the fuck was this his first movie? And he actually had a lot of experience, but this was his first as like the, the main guy, which is still impressive. And then after this, he was the cinematographer on films like An Officer and a Gentleman, Purple Rain, Scent of a Woman, famously reviled movie. He certainly had a good career, but it was not, you know, through the roof prestige stuff. Whereas this movie is just completely beautiful and it has the sort of key man things which are urban cityscapes with these neon lights at night so the sort of like teal neon color you just get so much in this movie in a way that somehow feels fresh it's hard to describe i just found looking at this film to be like completely mesmerizing yeah i mean it's gorgeous and it's doubly gorgeous when you consider how many people are trying to do this and failing and i wouldn't say he's like the only person right because it's like he obviously is like the peak of this sort of subgenre of reflective nighttime scenes but like in the 70s and 80s there are a lot of movies particularly in this sort of urban crime field that do have these amazing sort of nighttime scenes because that was like one of the key aesthetics of like new york at this point right but like nowadays when people are trying to do this they are absolutely flopping (laughs) well i would say 
I certainly don't have like complete expertise on movies from the 70s, but I've seen quite a few of the ones set in New York. And I would say that you do get a ton of really amazing cityscapes and cityscapes at night in the new Hollywood films from that period. But I don't think you get the neon stuff that he does. Like that feels very fresh to me in this movie. Not that there weren't like neon signs in movies, but the way he like pulls that light out and obviously has created lights and signs to go into the film. There's also in this New York Times profile, there's a detail that he sprayed the streets down with tens of thousands of gallons of water. (laughs) Which, like, it's a normal thing for when you're shooting in a city for this production to, like, wet the streets down yeah. because they look more real. But it this is, like, an ex- to an extreme degree. And so the amount of light reflecting off of the streets is, like, incredibly intensified, which I think helps with that a lot. Yeah. The just precision of the images and the color you get from them. And the, the way they shoot the, the heists, too, is just really, really masterful. I just found watching the movie so unbelievably pleasurable. Like, it just was a feast feast for my eyes. Which, you know, isn't that what movies are supposed to be? (laughs) You're supposed to just like looking at them. I mean, it was absolutely hilarious to watch this and The Grey Man in the same week. (laughs) I cannot. Because I had to review that. And that movie is absolutely incompetent at every single level. But specifically, it's a $200 million blockbuster starring a bunch of A-list actors where the whole thing is filmed through a haze of smoke or with lighting where you literally cannot see anyone's face. Just, so. just garbage. <laughs> yeah. So let us talk about the end of this film and then we'll touch on the reception and the fact that Drive copied it. <laughs> yes. So why don't you give us a bit of the summary of how this movie... Yeah, sort of so after he pulls off this really impressive heist, we've spent the whole film kind of thinking... Well, this is going to be his retirement cash. You know, he's going to get to have this happy life. I mean, we're watching the film, so we know that's not going to happen, but that's what he thinks is going to happen. But it turns out that the mob boss who has hired him is basically stringing him along and is like, you're getting a small percentage. I've invested the rest of the percentage on your behalf. And then when Frank tries to confront him with a great one-liner where he basically, the guy like makes some crack about like, well, join a union. And he gestures to his gun and is like, this is my union, which is a great moment of blue collar rebellion in this film. But um, he realizes that like he's fucking trapped because as soon as he like truly tries to rebel against his new boss, this mobster guy threatens his family, threatens to take away his child. He's like, that child belongs to me. I bought him. And Frank basically snaps and he like goes home tells his wife to just like leave gives her a bunch of money and is like just go away forever leave go on the run our relationship's over which is like fucking nuts and then he promptly goes off sets fire to his two properties the car dealership and the bar and then goes to murder the mob boss by like breaking into his house which is this like incredibly hideous mcmansion for like an old person full of ugly knickknacks and um and uh, he goes off and murders him. And then there's a shootout. Well, we've omitted the fourth build person, I think, in this movie, which is Jim Belushi. So we probably should mention that Jim Belushi is in this movie. And that it is, in fact, his murder, which is like the first straw that really snaps Frank here. So Belushi plays his like secondhand 
man. So SNL, this is pre-SNL. He was in SNL from 83 to 85. And this was one of his first film credits. And he's basically his just like a nice guy who's dealing with the radio stuff. And um, the sort of bad guys men capture him and um, try to get him to betray Khan and he refuses to do it and they kill him and then show Khan the body in this like, you know, slaughterhouse. So he's like hanging up like a, you know, slaughtered cow. And the Belushi character isn't particularly fleshed out. Like he's just kind of there, but obviously that's getting ideas of like loyalty between people with real relationships versus this employer employee relationship that's based on capital, right? And we should also say that the mob boss is named Leo and he's played by Robert Prosky and this was his first film role, which is I mean, he's done TV, but when I saw that, I was also like, that's wild, because like he was only 51, but he looks a lot older, as many people did during this era so like, he really does give this impression of being like this old guy He's got very powerful stage presence as a horrible old guy (laughs) I think he had done theater which makes sense, and he's a very good example of someone who like seems very friendly until you do something that he doesn't like and then all of a sudden he's really nasty and like shouting racial slurs and just like all of this gross stuff but um what i really love about the end of this movie is what you were referencing about the like union comment with the gun and he has like a little speech about how leo is profiting off of his labor without remunerating him because the idea of him trying to sort of invest this money on Frank's behalf sort of in quotes has come up before. And Frank's like, no, 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 you're giving me the cash. Like that is all I'm interested in. And he doesn't do it and instead invests it in this development. And is like, Oh, it's all going to be fine. And Frank completely loses it. And is like, absolutely not. And the fact that he then just snaps and is like, yeah, I will be literally destroying my entire life because you can't control me is both quite nihilistic and quite like, fuck you, man, right? Like, I mean, it's definitely <laughs> what happens when like, instead of spending your entire formative years working shitty jobs where you're like psychologically inured to the idea of being exploited by your boss, he's been in prison where like, if someone messes with you, you murder them. So, you know... <laughs> Yeah, there is a kind of, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. There's something just like electrifying about it, I think, which comes when someone just has nothing to lose, right? And they're just like, yeah, I'm willing to blow up my car dealership and my bar and my house and I'm just going to shoot you and everybody you care about. And in a weird way, unlike a lot of stories with this kind of narrative, Jessie kind of gets a happy ending because like... Okay, she doesn't get to stay with her husband, but their relationship hadn't been going on for very long. And what she does have is a baby and a bunch of money and to get to go and start a new life somewhere. So like, not ideal, but like, could be a lot worse. I think that's uh, a very generous reading from you of what happens to that character who leaves while like sobbing and screaming and has been sent off with no idea what's going to happen to her and no ability to contact her family ever again. So, but yeah, she doesn't die, yeah. which is nice. But people did not like this powerful pro-labor film at the time. (laughs) It was not popular, which I guess I can understand in the sense that, like, it just must have felt so different from other things that were coming out. To us, I think it feels quite congruous 
with those new Hollywood movies, but I think it is different in certain key ways. I read the New York Times review by Vincent Canby, and he was really focusing on the sort of implausible stuff to do with the Tuesday Weld character, which, like, fair enough. But there are a couple funny quotes from him. So he says, Thief takes place mostly in Chicago, though the actual setting is in the Twilight Land, halfway between gritty gangster melodrama and that world where writers meditate self-consciously on the sorrows of life. (laughs) That's the first line of the review, which I thought was quite funny. And he also says, this movie is loaded with so-called production values. Just like a brutal burn that I have to respect, even though I think he's totally wrong it's like you didn't know how good you had it buddy (laughs) oh my god like jesus christ but yeah why don't you speak a bit about the drive situation because it is quite shocking when you see this movie and you're like oh so we have an episode on drive that you can listen to but but like all the way through watching this movie i was like holy fucking shit this is drive because That movie is about a getaway driver for criminals who also has like a day job as a stunt driver. And structurally, it's very similar. The characters' personalities are kind of different, but they definitely share this idea of being this sort of blue collar outsider with a really specific moral and workplace code, which also we discussed in the Roadhouse episode a couple of weeks ago. Fucking amazing movie. But um, As you said, structurally, that one also begins with like a sort of introductory crime. And it's all about this guy who is completely uniquely talented at his job, which is very technical. And Drive is like a lot more gentle in some ways. Like it's sort of emphasizing that element of Ryan Gosling's screen presence. And also it kind of has a spiritual undertone to like his driving. But also, famously, it has these like few scenes of extreme violence. It also has this romance that is sort of about him getting this family because like he falls in love with this woman who lives nearby who already has a child but like she's tied up in a difficult situation because like her husband is just coming out of jail and this sort of thing so that all feels extremely similar and also the way that film is shot which is sort of not set in the 80s but like it was the first I think of these 1980s tinged films and also has this like famously amazing soundtrack of nostalgic retro style techno music which then like became this whole fad that is just still continuing to this day yes i mean the title card of drive is basically the same yes as the title it's card pink instead of blue <laughs> yep and they end pretty much identically which is that they're both both men are like wounded, but going on to sort of vanish into the night in this mythological way. I think that Thief is much more sympathetic to its protagonist than Drive is ultimately, although Drive certainly starts out seeming quite sympathetic to him. He really becomes a monster by the end of that movie. And I think that Drive handles the romance a lot better than this film obviously there were the problems with the casting of a white woman in that movie but if you don't know about that it all plays pretty well in the finished film i think and um as we've talked about the romance in this film is kind of like but it's an interesting one to think about sort of how we assess films right because i think that this is sort of a greater film than Drive and obviously it's the one that came first so that helps but I also think it has this sort of central flaw that I don't mind but is definitely a problem whereas Drive is sort of more perfect to me 
I mean, they fit very well with their ear into their eras, and yeah. they're both star vehicles for different types of stars. Yes. Totally. And I mean, I think it would just be such an interesting sort of college seminar to watch both of them and see the kids' heads just be like, what? <laughs> I mean, I was just thinking about it, and I was like, is John Wick the stupid version of this? <laughs> Because <laughs> I love John Wick and I think those movies are incredible, but like, I think John Wick is the stupid version of this. <laughs> I mean, I've not seen them, but based on what they're I know. They're definitely in that style where there's like loads of very well lit night scenes and they're all about like technical detail, except the technical detail is very gun focused and it's like this weird outsider guy with his very specific, you know, his moral code and so forth, who's pushed to the brink by his bad employers and it's a star vehicle. You know what? That's my thesis. John Wick is the stupid version of Thief. <laughs> there you go. We've solved it. We've solved contemporary <laughs> film. But yeah, I just can't recommend this highly enough. There's a beautiful Criterion edition if you're in the market for that. Um, that's sometimes streaming on the Criterion channel, sometimes not. But um, I had the Blu-ray and I watched it and it was gorgeous. But however you want to watch it, this movie is just like tremendously fun and beautiful and the james Conn performance is amazing yeah his twitter was great also if you want to have <laughs> have a nice time you can go back and look at his twitter and like any interview he ever gave just yeah i mean there's stuff. a great playboy interview from him with the 1970s where he just like talks about how you know his relationship with his macho image and like talks about his sex life and stuff and is just like very aggressively arguing with the interviewer it's so funny <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously in the days right after someone dies, you're probably not going to hear like bad stories about them on Twitter, but it really was nice to see the sheer volume of like wonderful stuff that was being posted clearly in a genuine way by people who'd had sort of tangential interactions with him. Just being like, this guy was like really normal, but also obviously kind of weird as everyone is if they're a movie star and just delightful and very confident. <laughs> yes, so I'm really looking forward to watching more of his movies. I gotta rewatch The Godfather. But yeah, we hope you check this movie out if you haven't seen it. And um, thank you all for listening, as always. We like to do these ones about old films. Uh, we I always get a couple messages from people saying that they watched something for the first time because we talked about it and they really liked it. And that's like the best feedback that we can get. So um, if you watch Thief because of this episode, let us know. Gavia, would you like to share what we're going to be talking about next week so next week we are doing magic mike xxl directed by gregory jacobs the sequel to steven soderbergh's magic mike this movie came out in 2015 it stars channing tatum matt bomer kevin nash and joe mandaniello and various others while the first magic mike is a somewhat elegiac and dark film about the economic downturn this movie is just a fun road trip comedy about a bunch of pals who are also strippers it's very entertaining if i recall correctly i don't think i've seen it since it came out but um i think we're gonna have a great time both watching and talking about this movie yes i haven't seen it since it came out either and i have a pure and glorious memory of watching this with a friend and it was just, it was just tremendous. I think I'm going to rewatch both the Magic Mics before we talk about this, because I haven't seen either of them since they were in the cinema. And um, what a great excuse to do that. 
there's a third one on the way <laughs> I'm just like, I'm excited I hope that all these guys who are now in their 40s don't have too miserable a time on their diets but you know they volunteered yes. for the job <laughs> yep yeah this is a Patreon request and what a wonderful request seems like a perfect sort of summer movie yes for us to talk about in August so uh the movie that, that really out. elevated Pony by Genuine to like another level it sure did sure did so yeah that will be next week if you would like to request an episode, you can do that at our Patreon. We also have a bonus episode with our summer Q&A listener mailbag up right now. So you can find that there too. That is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We also greatly appreciate ratings or reviews. A five-star rating or review is particularly helpful with visibility. So you can do that at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use. And Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I recently reviewed the new Sandman TV show. You can find me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor, and you can find me on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. And you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.